When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I'm chatting with Brandy Skilache about The Framed Women of Ardmore House. The cover on this one drew me right in. As soon as I saw it, I knew I had to read it. Brandy herself is autistic, and her main character, Joe Jones, is as well. I loved the neurodivergent representation and felt that she did a wonderful job portraying that on the page. Brandy is an autistic author, historian, and editor, a former professor of Gothic literature. She has an abiding love of mystery even appearing on Mysteries at the Museum, and she has also written several works of nonfiction. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Brandy. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I really enjoyed your book. It was such a fun read. And you have a great review from Publishers Weekly. Congrats. Thank you very much. That's always exciting to see, I think. Will you give me a quick synopsis of The Framed Women of Ardmore House before we dive into my questions? Absolutely, yes. So it starts with Joe Jones. Joe Jones is or was an editor at a small publishing house. She's autistic. She was married. Pretty much everything has collapsed around her right before the book begins. So she is divorced. She's lost her mother. And when her mother dies, she finds out she's inherited a strange property she didn't know anything about over in England. 
and she turns up to take possession. It's falling down. She finds a mysterious painting of a family member she knows nothing about. It goes missing, and the groundskeeper is murdered on the floor of her cottage. That all happens like in the first couple chapters. <laughs> Which drew me right in. So I was like, okay, this is my kind of book. Yeah. So basically, it's it's Joe is is dealing with a lot of change, right? She's a, a woman trying to reinvent herself, and she's doing it in a very new context. Everything's new. It's new country, everything. And, you know, you're you're seeing through her eyes what it's like to operate in these conditions as someone who is autistic or neurodivergent. And she also ends up being a suspect in the murder mystery. So not only is she worried that the murderer might strike again, but she also has to clear her name and find out who this mystery painting is all about. So I'm dying to know how you came up with all of the ideas for this one. Oh, well, I have a kind of, I can tell you a little story, but I can't tell you the end of the story. <laughs> um, I found out, well, I, I spent a lot of time in England myself. I've lived over there at different times off and on for residencies. And I found out that one of the gardens of the National Trust, and it's a big, beautiful garden, when they tore the house down that was on it, they found something. And it was a very unusual thing to find. And when I heard that story, I thought, I wonder if I could work this into a mystery that also showcases what it's like to be <laughs> like me, an American wandering around in North Yorkshire with people kind of going, are you like this because it's just you or are you like this because you're American? <laughs> you know? So I wanted to get those two things together. And I love art. I love art, too. So I was very happy that a painting was showing up in the midst of all of this other fun stuff. Is this a start to a series? It is. And in fact, I just finished or I am in the middle of finishing the sequel right now. Yay. I was really hoping so. And Publishers Weekly also commented on that. But I couldn't find anything anywhere. And I was like, I hope <laughs> this is a series. Yay. That's great news. It is. It is. Yeah. It should be um, probably, I mean, my guess is next summer. Um, not this coming, but, you know, coming up. So we've got this year and then next year I should be able to release the next one. That's very exciting news. Well, tell me about your research. Sure. Well, I should mention that I am autistic myself, and I'm also an editor, a historian, and a journalist. So I do scads of research, but I have a very, um, I'm hyperlexic, and so I have a very uh, full and committed and easy to, to track memory, which means I kind of pick up details, but I don't drop them. So some of the research for this book is kind of about me, and some of it is about all of the unusual things I've come across in my work that has just been stirring around in my brain, like the little cottage that I stayed at in Stratford-upon-Avon during a writing residency that was just super unusual and had all this back history, or like the time I spent you know, several months in, in Scotland on my own and kind of rambling the wilds you know, uh, and the hillsides. So some of the research is very much feet in boots kind of research. And then there's also the aspects of, um, well, I did have to learn a little bit about what it was like to do police work in England. Because <laughs> that's drastically different than it is it here. Really often. Is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, really is. And by the way, how cool to do a residency in Stratford-upon-Avon. I visited there, it's probably been five or six years, and loved touring Shakespeare's oh, yes. home. Like it was just one of those feelings that I still think about. You're like walking through the same place mm. he did. It just gave me chills. But how cool to be there yeah. for a residency. It was wonderful. And I, I lived actually in a cottage that was in a little, very small hamlet called Clifford Chambers. And that was about two miles away from town. If you took the Blackberry path through the fields and the farm fields. And so I talk a little bit about 
right of way or you know right to roam trails that are often uh, available in the UK where people can walk through property. So I ended up uh, walking two miles down to Stratford-upon-Avon every day to say have lunch and then back to my little cottage uh, where I was busily working on a book. <laughs> oh, I love that. So you just literally lived some of this and it was easy to incorporate that into your book. It was. And, you know, for me, I've always, I was a, a professor at one point. I'm an editor still. And I spent so much time reading and really engaging with British literature that I almost felt not quite at home at home. And that's also a common experience for people who are neurodivergent. But heck, I think that's a common experience for a lot of us, you know, where we just don't feel like we quite fit and we keep looking for those places that will feel like home to us. And I wanted to bring that into a book that was also a mystery. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the neurodivergence because I have a close relative who's autistic. And so I was just thrilled to read this book starring a neurodiverse character who I really liked, but I could also empathize with and I recognized so much in her. Mm -hmm. What was it like writing her? It was so much fun. So some people have asked me if I've based the character on myself. I haven't. Joe is much more fun. <laughs> um, she's, she's living a much more exciting life than I am. But it, it was a, a way of giving you a first person perspective on what's going on inside the mind of somebody who is maybe wired a little bit differently. And I think that it's not so, I don't think it's so different. I think it looks different. But then when you get down to the core of how we feel and how we engage and what our hopes and people are really quite similar. So uh, one of the exciting things was being able to show what it's like to ha have these characteristics. But the other thing that was quite unusual is my editor kept saying, you know, could you put in more of her autistic quirks? Could you give us more autism? And I thought, this is the first time in the history of everything that someone has asked me <laughs> to be more autistic. Usually I'm told, you know, could you be less yourself? <laughs> could you tone that down a little bit there? But that's what I liked so much about it was because either I was recognizing it or it helped me understand even more where she was coming from. And I love that. And I love that she was always like, are they upset because I'm American or because I'm autistic and I'm so direct? And both of those things are issues that people deal with in that right. situation. Right. Well, and the other fun point about it is you're in her head first. So you're like, you're seeing she's making a decision and you're like, yeah, OK, I kind of I get that. Sure. Then you see through another person's perspective, because there's a two perspective in the novel, what she's doing looks like on the outside. And you go, oh, yeah, that looks weird. <laughs> so it's also a way of, of showing people sometimes what looks not so normal on the outside. If you knew all the, the steps leading up to it, you'd be like, of course, of course. Exactly. And I guess that's what I was getting at is that because you do do the two perspectives, it just really rang so true and authentic. So I loved that. What surprised you the most when writing this one? Well, mystery novels are harder to write than I thought. Uh, <laughs> Everyone says that. It's really funny because that that gets said over and over again by people that have written other things and then write mysteries. Yeah, because I write nonfiction as well. I'm a historian and journalist. And I have written, I, I did write a young adult fiction years ago. And I thought, yeah, mystery. I watch mysteries. I read mysteries. Right. I know how these work. I know what the, you know, kind of what the expectations are. And then you get in the middle of it and go, how do I get myself out of this? <laughs> I've, I've set up a great mystery. How do I solve it? Dropping the clues in at the right place. So as a reader, I get to the end and I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But I didn't mm. see it coming versus, oh, I knew that was coming forever. Or who the heck is this that is now the murderer? <laughs> yeah. 
I, I hate it when I can't engage in trying to figure out the mystery. I, I always enjoy that. And there's two ways of doing it, right? There's some mysteries where you're pretty sure you know who the murderer is the whole time, but you can't figure out how they did it. And then there's others where you sort of figure out how they did it, but you can't figure out who the murderer is. And I love that aspect. I mean, it's so engaging as a reader. And some of that happens after you've written the first draft. I, I actually write all of my fiction longhand with a fountain pen on paper first, which takes forever. But it allows me to see the whole story. So then when I go back to type it all into a Word document, I can go, oh, you know, I need to drop a clue in here. Oh, it's better. It, I should mention this now because it's going to be important later. So that really helps me um, helps me to do that. Okay. So you write longhand and with a fountain pen. Yeah, I have a lot of fountain pens. It's kind of a sickness, I think. Fountain pens became a special in- one of my little... <laughs> special interests. And now I have so many of them. And I had I had my partner get me an ink vent calendar, you know, like an advent calendar. But oh, there's how a, cute. There's okay. a different ink every day. Really? Yes, it's so great. And I have so much ink, but I'm getting through it. <laughs> well, and that is a characteristic of autism, right? To like your special interest, what oh, you were yes. saying, kind of getting interested <laughs> in one thing and then being super hyper-focused on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am uh, sort of an expert on Sherlock Holmes because I read the novels, but then I read all the novels there were. Then I read all of the adaptations of the novels. Then I researched the time period. Then I researched the author. Then I got interested in watching the television shows. And then I decided to read all the biographies of all the people who have m- played Sherlock Holmes. Then I got the compendium research companion that has all the notes from the strand. So yeah, we we do that. <laughs> yes. And, and that's great because then you become an expert on whatever it is. And annoying at cocktail parties. Not at all. (laughs) Never. Well, what about the highlight of writing the book? Oh, gosh. Well, they become real to me when I'm writing it. And so it was they become friends. You know, you're writing it and I can't wait to see what they're going to do next. So writing fiction is very exciting because you your characters, at least for me, always feel like they have just maybe a little more autonomy than you meant them to. So they have a habit of surprising me. So when I get up to write, I think, oh, I wonder what Joe's going to get up to today. I love when authors say that or that they think about their characters after the book is done. Like, I wonder where they are now or what they're doing. And of course, you're writing a series, so you know what she's doing in the next book because you've been writing it. But I love hearing that. It's like they're real. They feel real. The places and the town, uh, Abington is not a real place. But if you go to, I have um, an Instagram account called at Netherlay and uh, N-E-T-H-E-R-L-E-I-G-H. That becomes important if you're reading the book. But that I also drew a map of the town for you. And I'm an artist as well. So I have photograph or I have um, artistic renderings of the characters up there. But I did. I drew a map so that I knew where everything was. So when I was telling you something was, you know, on the right hand side of the street, it really is. (laughs) So it's um, but it, it is a kind of a composite of a lot of places I've seen and been to. I was wondering about that. And what about Ardmore House? Ardmore House is also just something I've I've built from bits and pieces of different buildings and places that I've seen. And I drew a kind of composite of that to represent the house. And I've been in many, a lot of these old manors, like you were mentioning, you can tour Shakespeare's house. You can tour a lot of these old manors as well in England. And I've done that. I've toured castles. I've toured manors, manor houses. And you can really get your eyes on it and go, oh, wow. <laughs> surprising amount of decadence. And it, it helps you to kind of create that world for yourself. And that's that's kind of, it, that was a lot of fun. I have toured a bunch of them as well. And I love doing that. And you're always so surprised by the wealth. And as you said, the decadence and the things that are included in some of those homes. 
especially, um, you know, this is uh, North Yorkshire. And if you, if anyone's familiar with up by the Newcastle area, there's a, a Cragside, which is this huge, amazing house that was built by a lord and he installed electric light. He was one of the first places to have electric lighting and he created his own hydro screw dam thing to power it. And so you realize that in this time period, industrialists and you know, military magnets, magnates and people who are you know, making tons of money in the early industrialization of England have more money than they know what to do with. Exactly. You, you see this kind of result of this new money are, are often these expansive, bizarre, strange, interesting homes. And I, I wanted to capture that essence, even though the house of Ardmore is not exactly like that, but it just gives you that mysteriousness. Exactly. And what about the name? I was so curious because my grandparents grew up in a town, my grandparents and my parents actually, grew up in a town in Oklahoma called Ardmore without the first E. But I, as soon as I saw that, I thought, I've never seen the word Ardmore anywhere else. So I was dying to know how you picked it. Do you know, okay, so this is one of those autism things. I love words and words associate in my brain. And I have just a little bit of synesthesia, which is where you kind of see pictures or colors or or you, you get other emotional sort of reactions to words. And I was trying to write this book about a, a place that was nestled where there was going to be an arbor. And for some reason, the word arbor sort of kept going in my brain and grew, uh, espalier horticulture, right? It grew into the word Ardmore. And that's, that's actually how I chose it. Okay. I was so curious because as I said, I'd never seen it any other time other than this town in Oklahoma. So I was so curious. <laughs> I figured they weren't connected. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) You've written nonfiction in the past, as we touched on, and you talked a little bit about writing a mystery, and that was difficult. What about just writing fiction generally? You know, I I really enjoy fiction, and my my secret (laughs) my secret problem with writing fiction is actually finishing the book because I feel like I could just keep going forever. I just really enjoy that world. So I find that what makes writing fiction difficult. Is, is keeping it succinct. So another great trick about writing everything longhand <laughs> is you tend to be a little less verbose. You know, you want to actually get the story down because your hand gets tired. So um, creating the story in a notebook has this sense of completion about it, which helps me frame my fiction narratives. Otherwise, I feel like I would just, I would just spend 10 years and the book would just keep going. <laughs> It'd be like 2,000 pages and yeah. <laughs> you're like, I've got to end it at some point. It has to end. Do you write the entire story before you start putting it into Word? I do. Yeah. Um, well, with one, I guess, one exception, the, the one that I write physically with fountain pen tends to be shorter. And it's because sometimes I'm creating, I, I suppose, signposts for myself. And then when I'm like, okay, well, when I get to writing this on a typewriter or not typewriter, on a computer, I can expand this. So I'll, I'll give myself a note, you know, like, you, okay, we know where they're at. You need to describe this for the reader when you get to it kind of thing. So it is shorter. It's not as robust as the final Word document is. Um, but yeah, I get all the way to the end and, and solve the mystery and everything uh, with a fountain pen. <laughs> That's so impressive. My hand would be way too tired for that. After the end of chapter <laughs> one, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm switching to the computer. <laughs> You know, it's probably, I do try to exercise, but the most strong part of my body is probably my right wrist. <laughs> my right no wrist doubt. and those two fingers that hold <laughs> yes, the exactly. Hand. You're like, okay, I have all the strength in my right hand. That's right. <laughs> so you talked about a mystery being difficult to write. How did you approach that? Like, what did you do to try to remedy the difficulty? 
Well, for some reason, when I sit down with a mystery, I almost always see the ending first. So the problem is figuring out how I arrive there instead of, it's definitely a deductive way of writing. I end with the solution and then I have to work backwards. So it's, it's really kind of fun because I, I, I have to figure out where those scenes will marry up to make sense of that last scene. And I, and I tend to see them quite visually. So I usually start off telling myself a story about the story because I've tried outlining and I've tried note cards and, and none of that really works for me. Flow charts, none of that works. My brain is just not, it just doesn't function that way. So I sit down and I, I write little synopses, kind of. I tell myself a story about the story I'm going to tell. And then as I'm writing the story, I stop and I redo this. Probably every, you know, 25,000, 50,000 words, I stop to go, okay, we're going to tell myself the story again, make sure everything's still lining up. And that's how I do it. I, I keep thinking there must be an easier way, but I haven't found it. Well, and you mentioned your editor and her wanting you to put more autism in the story. Did she also help you with some of the plot points in terms of where things would go pacing wise? Or did you already have most of that down? Most of that was down. But what she was wonderful at is so sometimes my deductive reasoning is not like other people's deductive reasoning. And so I I hadn't left the clues were like too small. So usually they were there and she would say, hey, could you put this one on a stool, you know, <laughs> make this little flag raise a little bit higher so we see it a little bit better as the reader. So that was that was some of it. The other thing she was wonderful for is she really, really liked the backstory. So for the readers who are listening, there's kind of two mysteries ongoing in the book. And she really liked the second mystery. And I was worried they would try to tone that out. But instead, I was allowed to expand that. Uh, so the whole ending is actually like much longer than it originally was based on my editor's support of that story. Oh, that's so interesting. And obviously no spoilers, but I really <laughs> enjoyed the ending and the things that came to light. Yes. And there's a lot more of that coming in book two. Oh, good. Yay. You have an interesting background. You have touched on a little bit of it. You are a professor of Gothic literature. I cannot wait to hear about that. <laughs> you have been on Mysteries at the Museum. I cannot wait to hear about that. And you currently host a book club called the Peculiar Book Club. So can you tell me about all of these things? Certainly. So, uh, I yes, I am a strange hybrid creature in many ways. Adventure at the intersection, we might say. I am a historian, but I was a literature professor and I taught Gothic literature. But I also was, an, I'm into what's called medical humanities. So that's an intersection of medicine, science, and the humanities. So that's, I'm an editor of a medical humanities journal for the, for the BMJ right now. And so what I would do is I would teach classes on like Frankenstein and medicine <laughs> or Dracula and syphilis. So I would combine these ideas in these classes, which would kind of help you see the time period for what it was and why were they afraid of these kinds of monsters. Often it had to do with the history of medicine or what kind of pandemics were going on at the time. So it was, it's a very, very fun and interesting way to, to teach classes. And then from there, I worked in a history museum. So I was in a, I was the sort of a program person and a guest curator at a medical history museum. And I did that for years. And that, you know, just more places to absorb all these strange facts. Um, so a lot of my books in nonfiction are about medicine and history and science and weird facts about, <laughs> like, for instance, the first head transplant performed on monkeys, which really happened in the 1970s. And people don't know, you know. <laughs> so that all of that captured my interest originally. And from there, I, you know, I thought, 
I want to write books that cover these very strange, interesting, peculiar stuff. I was, because of that, was tapped by Mysteries at the Museum while I was working at the museum to go on and do several programs with them. And strangely enough, I'm now on the hit TV show, The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) Oh, I don't even know that show. I'm going to have to check it out now. And how fun. It's fun. It's on the History Channel. And I was talking about vampires this past Friday (laughs) on the show. Not real vampires, but, you know, vampire (laughs) scares and things like that. You mean not real vampires? Not real vampires. Um, so because I do this kind of fringe, you know, history of actual real science and medicine that crosses over with what people are frightened of. So people would get tuberculosis and they would cough up blood and they would get pale and wan and, you know, all these other kinds of symptoms that people thought, oh my gosh, they're vampires. It's got to be what it is. And so, of course, my research and history and my interest in Gothic literature end up having these crossovers. And that seems to interest people enough to put me on the History Channel occasionally. But I also realized, where do you go? What if you just, where's the hot spot for getting all this weird, interesting stuff? Where are all the books on peculiar things? And I remember asking a question on social media, like, hey, all of you who write these crazy, interesting, you know, nonfiction books, where where do you go as a platform? And Mary Roach, who wrote Stiff and Bonk and lots of other kind of peculiar books, she's like, well, you should make one. And I thought, I should. So I basically built the Peculiar Book Club, which is a twice monthly live stream show, um, video show on YouTube, on YouTube channel, and a podcast. And we invite, we've had Ed Young, we've had Alex Grecian, Stephen Gallagher, Mary Roach, Lindsay Fitzharris, um, Carl Zimmer, you know, lots of really fun, big name people have been on our show. We did Poisoner's Handbook with Deborah Blum, which is great fun. And we create cocktails to go with the books and we have skits and live music, (laughs) and just do other peculiar things to celebrate unusual books. And that is how I got involved in it, just because it seems like all my interests are kind of wrapped around, oh, we do mysteries too uh, on that show. It's all wrapped around mysteries. And you know, I even, I write for Crime Reads as well. So you can see how my interests are just kind of in a weird little umbrella. (laughs) But they all come together. I am definitely going to have to participate with the Peculiar Book Club. That sounds right up my alley. I love Mary Roach and some of the other people that you mentioned. And that just sounds like so much fun. Does it meet at a certain time and like a certain, like do Tuesdays every other Tuesday or how does that work? It's every other Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, basically all you have to do, people can go to my website, it's peculiarbookclub.com. And they they sign up for the newsletter and then I send live links out to the newsletter. You get to chat live with the authors uh, through YouTube. So you as the viewer can ask questions of Mary Roach or whomever and they chat back. And um, it's just we have a brilliant time and it's it's just silly and fun. But all the shows are actually up on our YouTube channel. So you can also go and subscribe to that and see all the ones we've done. And we're in our fifth season. So there's a lot of them. <laughs> Okay, this is so much fun. I am going to sign up as soon as we're done, and then I'm going to start participating because it sounds like it would be so interesting to me and a great way to learn about some nonfiction books that I wouldn't necessarily learn about. Right. And we basically do, I've chosen books, kind of books that I'm interested in, books that I would write. So we do mystery novels. There's usually three or three or four mystery novels a year, and then we do a lot of nonfiction, um, weird science-y nonfiction. Okay, good. Well, that sounds fascinating. So I would love to hear more about your title and your cover. I'm always totally intrigued with how titles come about and then also how covers come about. Right. Well, the title was actually a collaborative effort. Uh, My agent, my editor, and I sat down and the original title for the book was going to be Netherlay, which again is the 
for, for reasons <laughs> you'll, that you'll see. But we wanted it to be something that really told you what it was about, but also um, just had that little element of fun to it. You know, not exactly a pun, but kind of leaning you in the direction. It's a clue. So the title is basically also a clue. And we, 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 we knew we wanted to, to do with the portrait, we knew, the vanishing painting. We knew we wanted it to do with the house. And so um, after kind of batting ideas around, I think this was just thrown out of, like in conversation. And I was like, oh, no, that's it. <laughs> that's great. So yeah, I'm really happy to have had the help of my editor and my, my uh, just other folks around me kind of helping me design that, that perfect title. And when the cover came back, as I told them, I, I love Halloween. I love, you know, the orange is one of my favorite colors. And you know, it was just, they just got it. They just really understood the assignment, you know? <laughs> and they came back and I thought, this is the best cover I've ever seen. It's a great cover. And the orange really makes it stand out because you don't see a lot of orange. No, you don't. And the other thing is the the artist had read the book. And so when the artist sat down to make this cover, they also put some clues in the cover. So the cover itself has clues that, that you will pick up as you read the book. I always say that I love looking at a cover before I read the book and then looking at it after I read the book and picking up those little clues. I look at it at the front end and I say, this is a great cover. I can't wait to read the book. And then I like to get to the end and look at it again and think, does it match up or does it not match up so well? And see if there are little clues left for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to breadcrumb. I, I, I really want the readers of this book to be sleuths. I want them to enjoy the process of, of figuring it out. And it is figure out a bull. <laughs> so it's, it's not, a, I'm not cheating. You, you really can. All the clues are there. And I just, I love that. And I really hope that they enjoy just engaging with it and, and trying to find out what's going on. Absolutely. Well, Brandy, before we wrap up, what are some books that you've read recently that you really liked? Well, I am. So I said I was a Sherlock Holmes fan. That's true. I also got very interested in Jijayo Marsh, who was somewhat contemporary to Agatha Christie. And I have tons and tons of these books. You can still get them. They're, uh, they're just little paperbacks. They're so fun. Very smart books and just have a, a slightly more... I want to say a slightly more feminist lean than some of Agatha Christie's. So they're, they're really fun, even though they're period mysteries. Current stuff, I enjoy reading Louise Penny's books. So the first one being Still Life, and then there's been a whole series after that. And I just, I think those are wonderful. Donna Leone, I read lots and lots of those as well. The most recent thriller I read, and I don't read a lot of thrillers, but the most recent one I read was Red Rabbit by Alex Grecian, who wrote the Yard uh, series. and. The Harvest Man, that was amazing too. And I guess in terms of just, you just want a really, really good, solid, this is what mysteries are kind of all about. I would recommend Kingdom of Bones by Stephen Gallagher, which I think is just chef's kiss. I don't think I've even heard of that last one. Oh yeah. So there's a couple in that series, I think three, but I just love The Detective and it's another period one, uh, a bit like Alex Grecian's The Yard series where you, I love that because the atmosphere and of course, I'm a historian. <laughs> I love historical mysteries as well because of what you just said. You have the history and the mystery. And so it's kind of a double whammy for me. Right. Oh, you know what else is a good one? Killers of a Certain Age. Is that Deanna Rayborn? It is. And I love Deanna. I love her other series and other historical mystery series. And I love Killers of a Certain Age as well. Yeah, that one's great. Yeah, so great. I have recommended that to so many people and every single person has come back and been like, that is a fabulous book. It really is. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for all the recommendations. And thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. And I'm so thrilled to learn that there will be another book. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book nerds. nerds. 
two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.